Hi, my name is Amy Honorado, and I'm here with another DMN one-on-one podcast. I'm here with Matt Conlon. He's the co-founder and president of Fluent. Say hi, Matt. Hello. How are you? And uh, so today we're going to take a deep dive into data. So Fluent, um, they're a data services company, and they work largely with um, first-party data. And, you know, data's been in the news quite a lot uh, recently, and then people are trying to really wrap their heads around it. So I guess, Matt... Just to get started, can you tell me a little bit, um, in your own words, for people who may not really understand the difference between you know what first-party data is and, and what other types of data are and, and how it all kind of works together? Absolutely. Um, so from a high level, uh, first-party data is data that is captured uh, and shared by that consumer. So the way we like to think about it is if you're a marketer and a consumer is, is sharing with you insights through um, a survey that you might have on them, uh, or data that you're capturing as a publisher on their interactions on your website, uh, or registration-based uh, information, that's all first party. Third party is uh, any time that you're capturing data from a, another source. And I think what we're starting to find is third party data is commonly aggregated data. And, um, and, and furthermore, commonly modeled. And so what we're, we're starting to find more and more is that the accuracy of third party data is, can be uh, brought into question. Because many, many times you're looking at um, data and how to use data to help with your marketing campaigns. First party is obviously the best. It's self-declared, it's from that consumer, um, and is, is the best from a, prob- from a deterministic perspective. When you're dealing with third party, you're leaning more towards probabilistic, and you're looking at specific segments, you're not sure the accuracy, where, those, where that data came from. So a lot of questions come, start to arise. So first party data basically is any sort of data that's collected on your own personal website that, that you own. So yep. if you wanna give a couple examples, maybe like a, like a form or, or something like that? Yeah, so if you go to the New York Times and you wanna access certain content, commonly they'll ask you to create an account and purchase. That is then becomes New York Times first party data when Matt Conlon goes to register on that property. However, if New York Times is then selling that segment to BMW, BMW is using uh, data, they're using third-party data that's offered to them by New York Times would be an example of uh, where that first becomes third. Okay, so when you think about the way that the companies from the first-party standpoint on their own websites, you know, a lot of the need for that third-party data is their inability to collect certain things. That can be a challenge. You know, people are maybe unwilling to give up their email address or mm-hmm. kind of filling in the blanks with their full name or their phone number. If there is a need for first-party data, what can marketers do or, or how can they think about collecting it on their own to make sure that they have the information they need? So I'll, I'll take that question a little bit differently. I think... Um, First party data is critical um, for marketers to uh, execute a, a successful marketing campaign. It's not mission critical, but it's really important uh, for some of the accuracy with the points that I mentioned. But I think what, what we think about is there has to be a proper value exchange, right? If I'm a consumer and I'm gonna share personal information, I expect something in return for that in the form of content, in the form of offers, discounts, promotions, 
there's usually some sort of really important value exchange that marketers need to be mindful of. Um, and if there's a particularly sensitive piece of information that you think is valuable, you have to make sure that the consumer is going to benefit from sharing that information. And I think what, what we're starting to find more and more, especially in the, the age of um, you know, Facebook and, and everything else, consumers now have a, um, I don't think about this, there's an expectation that I've now shared this information, consumers are, are more willing to share information than ever before, and I think marketers now have a responsibility to make sure that experiences are more personalized and more relevant uh, for consumers. We have the insights, the consumers have shared them, so it's our responsibility as marketers to make sure that we're providing great experiences for consumers and that the products and services that we're marketing to them are in line with their needs. And so that's how we like to think about it is like, there's important to have a right value exchange for capturing data and what are they getting in return and then that responsibility to then use it appropriately to, to make sure you're offering the right products and services. Absolutely, and, and you bring up a good point about that experience. You know, think about the way that, that consumers interact with brands every day. You know, we're not just going to our desktops anymore. We're on our phones, you know, we're out and about having this kind of blend between brick and mortar and, and mobile mobility and things like that. So there's a lot more uh, different ways for marketers to even think about creating those experiences and engaging with consumers like that. So, you know, how how does mobile come into play now? So, mobile's clearly won the war, right? <laughs> and if if you think about, um, you know, if, I, if you're a marketer today, you have to have a mobile first strategy. I think the only people using desktop these days are people at their offices. And if you think about the next generation of, of kids that are going to be soon the, the, you know, one of the largest classes, I think they're calling them the, the Centennials, a.k.a. Gen, Gen Z, um, they're confused on when they see a mouse, not sure how to use it. They're swiping magazines. You've probably seen some of these YouTube videos. So there's this whole generation that's emerging that is uh, a mobile-first culture. I think uh, starting with the mobile experience in mind and making sure that you have some sort of desktop representation. But that's, you know, if you look at the trends, I think that's less than 20% uh, of internet usage comes from a desktop. So you're talking about if you build your experiences around the 80%, you can win the day. So we always work with our partners to make sure they're thinking through a mobile first lens, all the experiences, their creative optimizations, uh, all need to be, um, mobily geared, mobily minded, if you will. Absolutely. And you have to think also kind of taking it in another direction. The way that personal data is being viewed by the public right now is, is under some, some criticism and, and maybe a little bit of, of skepticism even. Yeah. Think about, you know, recently with the uh, Facebook scandal and, and how, the, how they handled their personal data as well as you know, upcoming GDPR regulation, which ha which puts some pressure on marketers to kind of make sure that they're being compliant and um, how they're aggregating and, and being and keeping data safe um, for their consumers. So, is this gonna? How do you think this is gonna impact the way that marketers look at it from a first party perspective? And, and what do you think that marketers should be thinking about as we in these shifting times, essentially? I think. 
what we're gonna find is that this is just the beginning of a larger trend. Um, so I think the Cambridge issues that uh, were brought to light recently and the whole Facebook scandal, um, coupled with GDPR, just the beginning. And what we're starting to find is that um, I think there's gonna be a requirement for marketers to ask more from their data partners and understand better where the data is coming from, what is it comprised of, uh, and making smarter decisions about how to leverage that data. And I think what um, we're starting to see, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll start with the, um, kind of the whole Facebook issue. That was a situation where you had 40,000 people engage with an app. And what they were only able to do was look at friends of friends and were able to model out uh, over 50 million people. So you had this whole kind of experience where um, there was 40,000 people that shared their first party data. And then through that engagement, they were able to get access to millions upon millions of other uh, insights. Um, and there wasn't that relationship where the consumer was saying, here's my information, here's what you can know about me and use this to market to me smartly. And I think what we're gonna start to find as a result of, of scandals such as that is, the consumers are going to have uh, a demand for greater transparency into who has my data and how are they using it to market to me. But at the same time, the marketers have, uh, are, I think, are going to be smarter with the data they're using and how they're using it. Um, and if GDPR is is um, any sign, um, you know, what we're starting to see with GDPR is that I think California is looking at um, similar regulation. Uh, several Asian countries are looking at uh, that very closely because frankly I think they're they're looking out for their consumers they want to make sure that as people are trying to share more and more data that it's being tightly regulated how it's being used and you know with, with fluent because we operate as a first-party self-declared um, data business right consumers are engaging on our sites we're having conversations with millions of consumers every day we feel uniquely positioned to uh, take advantage of these types of opportunities. Um, and the big question for us comes, uh, how are marketers gonna respond to the fact that third-party data is coming under greater scrutiny and um, there's a need now for marketers to prioritize first-party data? And there's gonna be some very large implications of how, how marketing strategies are gonna change as a result of that. Absolutely, and, and I think I think that there's also kind of that brand trust aspect of it too. If, if consumers are looking at the, you know, they want to make sure that that they're feeling safe. And I think that that what Facebook did was really bring that to light and make people aware, like, hey, is my data safe? And from a first party, if it's your website, marketers are going to have that responsibility to put the right messaging out there and say, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to make sure that we're taking care of you. So it really is also, if you think about it, kind of a brand trust thing as well that marketers need to think about. Yeah. I think the other, the other important part is getting the right kind of consent from consumers, right? So if you're a publisher, you have that responsibility to make sure you're very clear with consumers um, that their data is going to be used for, for marketing purposes and that you're capturing the right kind of consent and consumers are okay with that. And I think that's where a lot of the questions come up and why GDPR kind of sprung into action um, is that 
there was concern that a lot of data was being traded hands behind the scenes. Consumers weren't sure who actually had access to their data and how they were using it. Um, and that whole regulation is now calling for uh, greater control around uh, consent to market and making sure that uh, as a consumer, I have the right to remove my data for marketing purposes. And if I want to be marketed to, I have the consent to opt back in. And, and that opt-in component is really critical. Wonderful. That's a, it's going to be really interesting to, to see how things are going um, you know, once GDPR kind of takes full effect, full effect in May. Um, and also just you know, kind of to switch gears, I know that you guys uh, recently had a really cool announcement, um, and you guys are kind of fully standalone. So if you want to talk a little bit about that and, and let me know what you guys are, what you guys are, are up to moving forward, it's a, it's a big step. Yeah, so um, Fluence had a very exciting uh, run. We launched in 2010. At the end of 2015, we were acquired by a publicly traded company in the data analytics and risk management space. Um, and you know, two years later, uh, our parent company has uh, spun out into a separate public entity called Red Violet. Um, they're continuing on their, their mission and roadmap, but where that leaves Fluent is at a standalone public entity. Um, so Fluent will be trading on the NASDAQ uh, under the ticker symbol that's to be determined. Today it's cogent, tomorrow it'll be Fluent. Um, and we're really excited. We're in control of our own destiny. Um, and the roadmap is, uh, is a really exciting one. Uh, our growth prospects are huge and in light of, of all the different changes in the space, we feel we're uniquely positioned to take advantage of um, some massive, massive growth opportunities in the category right now. Well, that's fantastic. I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to come out and, and chat today. And for all of you guys listening, this has been another DMN 101 podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.